1: Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This is executive producer Ben Wilson. And on today's episode, we welcome Mike Marcellin, CMO of Juniper Networks. In this interview, Mike goes in-depth on how Juniper creates unique customer experiences, the importance of standing out to your partners to stay top of mind, the value of sharing information and data with sales, and much more. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at qualified.com.
0: Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of Demand Gen Visionaries and CEO at Caspian Studios. Today, we have special guest Mike. What's going on? Hey, Ian. How are you? I am doing great. Well, it's been a while since we spoke last and the world has changed, but it's your first time coming on Demand Gen Visionaries. We're so excited to have you on to talk through your Demand Gen background as, as a part of your career. So let's get into it. What was your first job, either unofficial or official, in Demand Gen?
1: Well, I guess I would say, you know, one of my philosophies about demand gen has always been that everyone, certainly in marketing and even maybe even in functions beyond marketing, need to think about creating demand, need to think about how do we help the company sell more stuff. And so in really all of my marketing roles in the past, I've had at least one foot in demand gen. But honestly, my first true ownership of the function was when I started as CMO here at Juniper. Again, i had had tangential roles and I had played a part in it, but I'd never owned kind of that demand gen engine until I took over as CMO here. And it was fortuitous timing because you know, the company, you know, Juniper came up originally serving the largest telecom operators and, and then even more recently cloud operators in the world. And when you can count your important customers in the one or 200 globally, you know, the role of demand gen isn't quite as important, honestly. You approach them in a different way. But as the company started to evolve and as we started to look at, we need to broaden our reach in the marketplace, focus on many more verticals than the ones we had historically focused on, that was around about the time I was picking up the CMO job. And so uh, it was great timing to really double down in a demand gen function, which like I said, the company hadn't really done that much of prior. And for
0: those of our listeners who don't know, can you share a little bit more about Juniper Networks, like the type of customers that you work with and the type of personas that that you all are selling into?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Juniper Networks is a company that provides networking infrastructure, security infrastructure for IT networks. And those could be or you know a smaller medium-sized enterprise all the way up to as I mentioned some of the largest telecom operators, cloud companies on the planet, and so we deliver those types of solutions. And so our typical go-to buyer is the CIO in their organization or the CTO in their organization. Like a lot of companies, buying centers have certainly broadened and evolved, and so now more and more it's also about line of business. And I think probably the biggest driver for that evolution or broadening is just that the network and IT have just become so much more critical. Every company has a digital transformation imperative. Every company is figuring out how to invest in technology to propel their business. And so the world we play in has become more strategic even just outside of the CIO organization, to the CEO, to the board. And so that's given us some more interesting personas that we can go after.
0: Okay, let's get into our first segment here, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What? I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest. Are we not? So this is where you're going to feel honored and trusted in our trust tree here. And you can share your deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. All right. So what would you say your demand gen strategy is?
1: Well, I mean, ultimately what you're trying to do is you're trying to drive as much pipeline for the business again we're b2b so you can't necessarily talk to b2c where it might be a little bit different but for us we've got a sales force we've got a set of channel partners and there's no more valuable thing that we can do for them than to hand them a wonderful lead that then will convert into a sale so if you strip it all away that's what it's about now you know how you do that probably hits on a lot of different dimensions which i trust we'll talk about today but certainly you have to have a really close working relationship with your sales colleagues because They're targeting certain customers. They are focused on different industries. They see different parts of our portfolio that are more telling at any time. So understanding their sales strategies and how we can support them and and in some cases lead them into new markets is extremely important. And then obviously within the marketing organization, making sure that we've got all parts of our team across all different functions that have any relevance to demand gen understanding where we're going and strongly interconnected. I mean, that's been an interesting journey as we figured out, you know, how to optimize the structure of our demand gen function and how we attack it.
0: And how do you organize your team within both the marketing org and then specifically demand gen?
1: Yeah, I think back to actually Juniper's founder had a saying, he said it more in an engineering context, but I think it actually applies to a lot of things and that is centralize what you can distribute what you must. And it's actually pretty profound because obviously we know the benefits of centralization that you can get from efficiency, but you also realize that sometimes you do have to distribute things if there's a strong, compelling reason to do so. And so we've tried a few different structures over the years. And I think where we've landed is certainly a hybrid. It's not all one single organization, but we do have a single central team that lives and breathes demand gen. They live and breathe the targets that we've set, and they are creating the global campaigns, the frameworks. They're thinking through the personas. They're understanding the different parts of our portfolio and even prioritizing our demand gen efforts. And then we have a distributed set of folks, most notably our field marketing teams who are deployed around the globe alongside our sellers, whose job it is is to really Land those demand gen campaigns in their respective markets. So they are the closest to the buyers. They understand localization. Certainly, if there are cultural differences and how we should approach demand, all of that is best done by people that are closest to those markets. And so it's really kind of that hybrid mode, as much as we can centralize, I think we have, but then leveraging the distributed teams for that last mile. And also, by the way, to run some tactics feed into the demand engine as well. Again, tactics that are best done, we'll think about when we used to do in-person events, which maybe at some point we'll get back to. But even as we're doing virtual events, we're doing some of those on a country-specific basis, for instance. And so having those teams run those, that's a contributor to our demand pipeline.
0: Yeah, years ago, back in the the olden days when we used to do events, (laughs) seems like so long ago. Yeah. So as you're looking at, at your demand gen team, what are the types of folks that you look for? What do you think makes a good demand Jenner?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And a couple of things are certainly true. One is that this has become much more of a science over the years. And with the amount of data that we now have at our fingertips that can be hugely valuable to basically making demand gen successful. But it's only valuable if you have people that can make sense of that data. And so one of the first investments I made a number of years ago when I took over CMO was in a team of data scientists. And that team still exists today. And they're not not the ones building the campaigns per se, but they're the ones, first of all, setting up our data architecture and creating the, the platform for us to bring all the data together in one place. And then they're the experts when we have questions we have to ask about the ROI or efficiency of our campaigns, or they help us with segmentation and how do we target certain areas of the world or certain industries, that really robust data knowledge, I think, is super important. Then even the folks that are the true kind of demand gen, campaign architects, campaign builders, campaign executors have to be pretty conversant nowadays with data. So if I were looking for one skill that I would say has to be there in all cases, it is data proficiency. The other one that I think is important is demand gen often sits in between, let's call it the product and product marketing world and the sales and customer buyer world, which means you have to understand what resonates and is important, buyers, potential buyers, but you also have to have, be reasonably conversant in our portfolio and our solutions. You know, in our case, as a technology company, you know, I don't expect our demand gen people to go into the weeds on the technology, but they need to understand the portfolio and what it does and why it's valuable, and then do that pivot and that translation into language into demand gen hooks that a buyer is gonna that's gonna resonate with the buyer and can get them engaged. So that we can start the process of unfolding and divulging more about why our solutions are the best for them.
0: well, and you have such a technical product, you know, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that is potentially difficult for a lot of demand gen marketers is that they don't have a fundamental understanding of like what the product does, or or maybe not a relationship with the type of customers. You know, we talk a lot about how you need to actually get out there and talk to customers and sit in on sales calls and those sort of things. But how have you approached that in terms of like getting your demand gen team and your broader marketing team making sure that they're living and breathing the technical details of something that's potentially really complicated?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say if you think about for demand gen specifically, ultimately. Well, we're certainly accountable to ultimately revenue for the company, if what we're doing isn't yielding revenue, then we're doing something wrong. But our true accountability kind of is a little bit upstream from that. And what I mean by that is, at least how we're structured, you know, our goal is to engage customers and prospects, to work with them and monitor their buying signals, and ultimately get to a point where a lead is warm enough, where we want to pass it over to a sales development rep, to an inside salesperson, or to a partner, and on occasion to one of our outside salespeople. And then they will take it from there and work that and hopefully, you know, ultimately win the business. And so it's kind of like, you don't necessarily divulge all the details on a first date. And so we're in those you know, we're in those first, second, third date world. And then we bring in our salespeople to continue the conversation. So I don't see that our folks have to be in the weeds. And in fact, if they're in the weeds, it can take away from their ability to have that initial conversation because someone doesn't know us. Forget about me telling you why our security solution is the best in the industry or why, you know, why our AI driven Wi-Fi is amazing. Your first question is, why should I even be talking? I have a current supplier, probably. We don't do too many green fields. I have a current supplier. Why should I even be talking to you? And so your value has to start at a higher altitude than the bits and bytes of of our technology. And so it's really kind of gleaning what is that higher order business value that's going to resonate with a CIO, CTO, a line of business buyer around ability of their business, simplicity of their operations, saving money obviously can be a key element of that helping them generate revenue or grow their business more quickly. Those are the terms that we have to talk about. And in fact, you know, one of our campaigns right now is called Let's Get Real. And it really is juxtaposing a lot of the hype that's in the industry with real results that we've seen from our customers with quantifiable business metrics. And that really helps open doors. We'll eventually, if we do our job right, we'll eventually get to a conversation about the technology. But the first goal is, why should I be talking to you? What's in it for me? How's it going to help my business?
0: And are a lot of the accounts that you're targeting, are these folks that are like net new to the company? Is it, is it more of an upsell situation? Like what does that normally look like or is it all over the board?
1: It's definitely all of the above. I will say, I mean, we are by far the biggest driver of new logo conversations in the company. I mean, our sales folks are tasked, even aside from what marketing may bring them, they're certainly tasked with trying to get into new logos. But by far, we're that engine to try to do that. And in fact, if an account is, we call it named, so it's assigned to a salesperson, we already have a foothold, maybe you know they've already bought some of our solutions, we will still engage them with some of our marketing campaigns, but we don't even take credit for that when we're tallying up our demand gen pipeline numbers that we're accountable to for the company. Because I don't want to get into this debate over, you know, with a sales team, like, well, wait a second, we were already working with them. How can you say that? Mark- How can marketing credit for that? So that's more of a a sales assist that we do. But but what we really hold our accountability toward is new business. And that doesn't mean they could have never done business with us, but there's not a salesperson actively involved with them right now. And we've nurtured an opportunity and we have brought that to the salespeople. But certainly the vast majority of those leads and opportunities we bring are relatively new logos to us. Either they've never done business with us, or it's been a a very long time. And we have kind of rules around that so that we're all clear with the rest of the business.
0: Well, you know, it's really interesting because I think when you're talking about new logos, specifically in when you're selling to IT or to technology leaders, it's really tough to have a strong inside sales or like outbound motion from a sales perspective because of just how unbelievably busy and, and how many emails that CIOs get and all that sort of stuff and senior technology leaders. I mean, like it's, it's really interesting that, that your marketing motions are the things that are driving the demand and the interest there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at least in our space, uh, you know, our sales teams would much rather nurture existing relationships and they're actually extremely good at that quote unquote, knocking on doors, (laughs) uh, whether that's actually knocking on doors or somehow virtually doing that, that's tough work. And so that's what marketing can do at scale. It's not as if we have someone attend one webinar and then we're chucking that over the wall to sales. Typically it is multiple touches, a level of engagement that we believe has created that warm opportunity and reasonably qualified. And then we hand that off to sales. And so that motion for them When some of that early legwork is done, is a much easier motion for them to take the ball and run with.
0: As you're bringing those folks into the pipeline, how do you view the relationship with your website? Like, how? What are the types of things that you're doing to get to drive interest there to get those conversations for the warm handoff to sales?
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly the website is in many ways the hub of our demand gen, and there's certainly a lot of tactics off the website that we do. Be clear, but. If someone comes to the website, it is, even if they're they're not thinking they're in a buying mode, it's always an opportunity to engage with them. And let me just say engage with them. And, and whether that engagement leads to an immediate opportunity or whether it just points them to a webinar they didn't know about, an event they didn't know about, and on our website, because of course we have all the ad space is ours. So pointing them to some of our new solutions um, so that they can learn more about them. All of those things are part of that demand motion. And then clearly... Anytime we have the opportunity via the tactics that we run, point them back to the website and the respective landing page for whatever it is they're engaging with, that just gets them into the fold. So I see the website as critical. And in fact, even beyond what you might think of as traditional demand gen, our website is used for customer support. Our website is used for technical documentation and getting started when you are onboarding a new product. And so all of those other touch points, which you know, they're not necessarily coming to be sold or, or even to be engaged. But it is an opportunity to do that for cross sell, upsell motions, and just ultimately to improve that engagement, improve the customer sat, which down the road is going to pay off in the customer buying more.
0: How do you view things like conversational marketing, like both in real time or with bots or things like that on the site?
1: We actually have turned up a, I'll call it a chat bot. I mean, I think that doesn't even quite do it complete justice because it's got some really neat AI sitting behind it. But yeah, we put that on our website and. It was very interesting to see how that technology learned and got more effective and actually very quickly did so. You know, We spent a lot of time on the front end, of course, getting it set up and even doing some you know hard coding of things that we thought we didn't want to have a bad experience out of the gate, but we knew that the technology would learn. And so now what's happening is roughly 85% of the user's queries I'll say. And, and you know, to be clear, th- those could be anywhere from I want to buy something, to I want to learn more about something, to I have an issue, to just a general question. So it's all manner of things. It's not all related to what we would call demand gen, but about 85% of those queries are solved to their satisfaction because we ask them. Um, and then the rest we can hand off to um, you know, an inside sales type of person, if that's appropriate, or a customer service person, if that's more of what they're looking for. So I think very quickly, I mean, we've had this running for, you know, a couple quarters now on our website. And very quickly, it's become something that's actually increasing satisfaction, increasing engagement. You know, the worry is always people, you know, might not like this, it's going to decrease satisfaction, but it's actually been the opposite. So it's been a pretty important addition to our our website.
0: Yeah, we're huge fans of Conversational and obviously the sponsor of our show, qualified.com. We love them. But it really is interesting to see the rise of folks like kind of doing the Gen 1 or Gen 2 of like, hey, we're going to put something on our site that's going to drive some conversations that you know we're going to see how people interact with the bot. And then we're going to integrate sales in some way and kind of see in the data. It's
1: like, huh, can't
0: believe we never had this before, right?
1: No, exactly. And the important thing that we try to do with everything we do from a demand gen perspective, I was walking through earlier where it's like, you know, marketing is nurturing and then we're passing leads. And that is kind of at a high level of the flow. But actually, we work extremely closely with our sales development reps. And these are the folks, and I know different companies call them different things, business development reps. These are the folks that typically are accepting our leads and making outbound calls, outbound emails, connecting via social media to try to further that, and they may close some, or they may hand that to a partner salesperson or a Juniper salesperson. And so it's not—it's certainly not a waterfall mechanism where we're doing a bunch of stuff, pass it over to them. So whether it's with things like a chatbot, whether it's just the campaigns that we do in general, or the events or the other activities, tactics that we do, thinking about how an SDR could be engaged even throughout the process to validate interest even just thinking about, well, you know, you attended an event. Maybe we don't believe that it's quite to the point where we'd call it a, a marketing qualified lead. But if the SDRs have cycles, maybe they can just call out and say, thank you for attending the event. Is there anything I can help you with? Very open-ended, very low pressure. So thinking about it just as how should someone be served as they're kind of working their way through a buying process? or maybe aren't even thinking they're in a buying process, but how can we engage with them? So it's, it's a little bit of a rethink and an integrated thinking of, you know, how we should approach this buyer's journey that we all talk about.
0: You talked about getting into the details, into the tactics a little bit, and we're going to do just that. Let's go to the playbook.
1: This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game
0: the playbook is where we open up the playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable? I would never in a million years cut these no matter what budget items.
1: Yeah. So let me maybe I'll I'll answer that on two levels cuz kind of at the broad brush level, what are the areas that I think are super important and uncuttable? And then I'll get into maybe some of the tactics that are working hard for us that we wouldn't think about cutting. So just at a high level first you know, I've talked a lot about technology and, you know, making sure that whether it's a chatbot on the website, whether it's our Martech stack all up, you know, that and data science were the two big investments I made right out of the gate five years ago when I started as CMO here, because I felt like that was how we were going to get a competitive advantage. In fact, many of our competitors are much larger and will can outspend us from a marketing perspective. And for that matter, from a sales perspective, they'll have more feet on the street. So we have to be super smart and super targeted and effectively outsmart them because we can't outspend them. And so you know, that technology stack and the rigor we put around vetting technology, that's one area I would say is uncuttable. The hand-in-hand thing, as I mentioned, is data. Now, we don't have a huge data science team, but we've got a handful of folks who are dedicated and are, and are experts, and they are a huge resource to our organization. And then probably the third area, kind of, again, at a macro level, would just be content. And that comes in many shapes and sizes, as, as we all know, but making sure that we've got the right expertise at all stages of the funnel to create high-quality content. So those are the broad brush areas, I'd say, are absolutely invest areas. Um, And then maybe from a tactics perspective, you know, I would say we have actually had tremendous success over the past three or four months with virtual events. We pivoted extremely fast. And and by the way, we were doing webinars and things like that before, but I'm talking about big events that we previously would have done in person that we've now pivoted virtual. And we've seen a lot of success with that. And of course, nowadays, we couldn't cut that if we wanted to because it's one of our primary mechanisms. But I would actually see going forward even post-COVID, whatever that looks like, doubling down in that area because we've seen a lot of success. And then the other tactic I would just say back to the content as a broad brush is, you know, just making sure, you know, it's so easy to fall into the trap of creating marketing, blah, blah, you know, where you're saying things that are just generalizations or things that your competitors could equally say. Again, because we're the primary way that this company gets engaged with new opportunities, it's got to cut through the clutter that's out there. You you said it. I mean, people are so bombarded nowadays with emails and invitations to webinars and they're trying to do their day job and are not in the mode of dealing with a lot of marketing pitches. So what you say has to be timely, relevant, cut through the clutter and just ideally be something that is either quantifiable or just, you know, real value that you can deliver to their business. And so creating that content, yeah, there's the actual writing of it but there's also what sits behind that, which is making sure you're looking at the value that you're bringing to your customers in a quantifiable way. And we've got a small team that does business modeling. We'll do it alongside with customers actually throughout the, the buying phase, but then that serves as a great source of that data after the fact. So we can say, we saved company X you know, 40% by implementing this and this is how, it, how, how that savings was actually realized. And whether or not we could name company X it's still valuable. And certainly if we can name them, it's even better.
0: A lot of great stuff to unpack there. And I want to I double tap into a few of those. So what do you think makes a great virtual event? Like, what are you seeing that, you know, you say that you're never shifting off of them anymore. Like, why? why is that?
1: I'd say the same thing that I'd say about an in-person event or almost any other tactic, that content is king. But how you deliver that content, obviously, in virtual format, and then in this world where we're all virtualed out to some extent, you know, whether that's just our day-to-day meetings that we're all doing via Zoom or whatever the technology is, we really have to make sure that we're delivering content that is timely in the right kind of chunks and understanding that people aren't gonna, you know, whereas they might have come to one of our big events and spent a whole day with us, or or even in some cases, I mean our, our global conference was a two and a half day affair over, you know, over the better part of a week when you add in travel on either end. So you can't necessarily do that. A great virtual event starts with hard-hitting, quick-hit content that's modular. And so every single session we had, including keynotes, was under 30 minutes. Most of them were under 20 minutes. And so that was super important. But within that, we were able to do demos. So while you couldn't get truly hands-on, you could feel like you were getting hands-on with the solutions that we have on offer. So that's really important to show it's not just PowerPoint put online. It's, It's actually, let me just show you how this stuff works. It's trying to build in some fun. So we've done some events where, you know, we'll, you know, engage a group of customers or prospects, and then we'll do, you know, wine tasting at the end, or we'll do, you know, bring in a, a virtual chef and, and do something that they can actually do from their kitchen and with their family. So it's all manner of things, tr- trying to actually take advantage of the situation we're in rather than lament it and pivot everything we did, slap it online think it's gonna work in the same way.
0: And did you get any like anecdotal feedback or things from those events? And then also like what data were you using to measure the success of those?
1: What we did back last quarter was we took what we were planning to do as in person big in-person events and we put them virtual and then we ran two of them one targeted to one of our customer segments and the other targeted to the other and big segments so for us i mentioned we work with a lot of telecom and cloud companies so that that's a very different buying decision in the networking world than an enterprise would have so that was the bifurcation i mean that was important because we didn't you know we wanted the content to be relevant to the audience and when you look at the attendance that we got actual attendance not registrations actual attendance we got for those two events, it was more than all of the in-person events. And there were dozens last year combined. So it was massive and certainly exceeded our expectations. And uh, you know, a sizable chunk of those attendees attended or listened through five or more sessions. So not only did they come, but they were engaged and participated throughout. So those big events for us were certainly, again, pretty successful. And we Pivoted pretty quickly to get to them. I mentioned some of the other other events with like the you know the wine tasting or whatever. That's a smaller group where typically we're targeting like a CIO audience, including many you know new logos that don't have any relationship with us. And you know the hook, of course, is that we're going to give them a nice evening with a master sommelier. But we also spend time talking about our solutions and the feedback we've gotten from those in the event was great. I think it added some fun to ongoing online meetings that we're all a part of now. But then the follow-up has been good. I mean, in many cases, if you're meeting with the CIO that doesn't do any business with us, you're not going to have a sale the next month, but you're starting a conversation that our sales teams can follow up with. And those initial conversations have shown some really good early progress. But again, we're pretty early uh, on in, in doing those.
0: Well, and the thing that's so fun about things like that is it gives you a reason to follow up with interesting things, right? So if you did a session with a sommelier, you could send them a different bottle of wine every month for the next year or something like that. Or you could let them know about like similar events or something, especially for the people who really enjoyed that event. Like that's the thing that I think is, is so fun about the experiential marketing or this blend of like event plus experience or digital event plus experience is that you can now like, as a marketing team, follow up with that person so that sales isn't like, you know, being the person like, hey, how was that bottle of wine you just had? You know, it's like marketing can follow up like, hey, you know, we just sent you something else that's new, or you can continue a conversation and be memorable. And it's like, at the end of the day, if they're like, you know, Juniper's pretty great. They know exactly what type of wine I like. And they send me a new bottle every month. It's like, (laughs) that's a pretty advantageous place to be, to be top of mind.
1: Yeah, well, you're exactly right. And I think there are a couple of things to tease out of that. I mean, one, if you were sending a bottle of wine each month for, let's say for 12 months, in the grand scheme of things, and, and we've done this, you know, primarily towards kind of the C-suite. So the tougher folks to get in with, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that cost is not that high to really have an ongoing engagement with a high value potential buyer. So that's number one. And number two, I agree marketing can play an impactful role. The only thing I would say is you do have to think differently than normal because the big mistake would be to take that initial engagement and then to shove a bunch of senior level decision makers into your traditional digital nurture streams and and start spamming them or whatever else. So it's definitely a different kind of engagement, but it can be extremely fruitful.
0: That's a great point. And those people, you you should have some personalized messaging for them anyways. And I think that that's where you look at one of the other things that you brought up, and obviously your company does this so it's core to your business but ai i mean you're looking at opportunities with ai and personalization and things specifically with regards to demand gen to do stuff that we never could have ever done like how i know you all are using ai you know again you do it as a company but how are you looking at like ai plus demand gen
1: I'd be remiss if I weren't looking hard at AI within marketing, given that we've got some market-leading AI solutions for our customers with our products. And I'm super excited about it, partially because we have made the investment in data. I mean, AI is worthless without data. And the more data, the better the AI uh, can be, or the more the more valuable it can be, or the more value it can deliver. And so our investments in data over the past few years, I think, set us up extremely well to take advantage of AI that is still... I'd say pretty emerging in the marketing space. But I am excited about the opportunities to do better segmentation and targeting. I've looked at you know some technologies that use AI, whether it's truly for content creation, like on the fly, or just helping to recommend content and make the job of the marketer or the campaign architect easier. I think there's really some promise with that. And then if you take it even a step further, you know, ultimately I talked before about how marketing and sales, like that is the partnership that you have to make sure is strong in any B2B company. And if you really start to peel back the entire sales process, inclusive of where marketing typically engages, you know, I was having a conversation with our our global head of sales like a month ago, and he said, you know what? Every one of my salespeople right now is an inside salesperson. And that's because they can't travel around and they can't do what they usually would have done. And that is, I think, created a little bit of a light bulb moment. Not that I would think that we'll, you know, a year from now have no people back out traveling to see customers, but if you're you're actually pretty successful in figuring out how to do things virtually, it should give you an opportunity to rethink the entirety of it. And so we've started to peel that back and say, if you map the sales journey from the very first touch to the purchase and maybe even post-sales... And you looked at all of the things that people typically do, many of which historically they've engaged a salesperson for. You know what? A lot of that could be either automated or at least delivered online. Maybe there is a person behind that, but all of that is fair game to reimagine the sales process. And you asked about our website. I mean, you can think about your website and your other digital assets becoming even more important as you think about automating and digitizing the customer journey.
0: Yeah, I mean, if people are spending so much time pre-sale online, you know, they say, whatever, 70, 80% of the buying journey now. And it's not, again, it's not linear. They're jumping around and doing different things and they're exploring at different times. If all of that is happening at different times, and then somebody jumps on your website and is like, hey, I want more information. It's like, let's get someone talking to that person immediately. (laughs) Let's not wait until they get on a plane to go to Iowa to sit down with them to talk about it. They were just reading about your stuff. They're in the mode. I mean, I think the relationship with marketing will completely change. I think you see a lot of executives now that have Zoom-to-Zoom meetings the whole day, and then they put their kids to bed, you know, if they have kids or whatever, and then they log back on at 9 p.m., And then they start looking at stuff like, okay, I'm going to review the proposal that my team put together about this technology. Well, if they have questions right then, let's answer them right then. Like, let's not wait until we get to the PowerPoint meeting that you know is going to be at the headquarters with the entire team on. Like it's just silly to think that that is going to be the way that everyone wants to do business now, and they they just they just won't anymore. I mean, we've all. It's just not going to happen that way. Some people will love that still, but other people
1: won't. You're absolutely right, and actually, your point about the journey not being linear is dead on. I mean, one of the things that I think we've done to really strengthen our relationship with sales is. I mean, I've got this philosophy. I mean, marketing should not hoard data. We are sitting on a mountain of data. First and foremost, we need to figure out how we harness that to make our activities more effective and our outcomes better. But equally, because that journey is not linear, to your point, I mean, if someone's been on our website or attended our events, you know, downloaded a bunch of white papers, whatever it is that they're doing, engage with us in all of those different ways, wouldn't it be good if our salesperson knew about that? And so we have had the philosophy of having complete transparency with that. We may have talked about this the last time, but we invented the marketing bot. I mean, we call it the marketing bot. And basically, it, it's a window into all of the data and all of the knowledge that we have about our customers. And if you kind of envision the marketing bot as this always-on you know, marketing colleague working in the background... And then they surf, it surfaces up when there's some inf- information or some, something to be shared. And certainly we use that within marketing, but, but now increasingly in sales, you know, they use that as a means. because they, they don't necessarily know if 10 people in the account they're calling on are researching things on our website. Or better yet, I mean, with some of the tools that are out there, we can know whether people are out there on other you know, non-Juniper websites, but showing buying signals, maybe with our competitors or maybe just in general. That's extremely valuable information for a salesperson. and So we kind of roll that all together in a consumable way and serve it up on a silver platter to our sales teams.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I think that that's such a critical insight. You know, if you know where they are and what they're doing and how to facilitate that, I'm curious, like any best practices there or tactics that that you all leverage to serve up that info on the silver platter?
1: The beginning of the whole story was we started, as I mentioned, investing in data and just kind of getting our house in order making sure we had the data. Once we had that, then it was a question of how to present it. And honestly, we started by doing Tableau dashboards that were available to salespeople, posted on the site where they go to get that information, either within Salesforce or a separate kind of reporting site. And honestly, when it was a reactive thing, we didn't get great uptake on it because a salesperson had to think about going into it and then had to kind of sift through a bunch of reports. So that's where we said, all right, let's figure out how we can, this isn't a very nice way to say it, but not just bring the horse to water, but shove the horse's face in the water and make him drink. But in all honesty, the way we do that is by being really careful about when we bring the information. I talked about kind of always working in the background and only surfacing when there's an insight that's of value. I mean, if we're just bombarding them with information, it's going to become noise really quick. So it really is looking at all of those buying signals, looking at all of the information and engagement we have, and then serving it up to them. I mean, it is available always, so they can always go and get it. But you know, we have you know, plugins with their email. So if they have a meeting coming up with given account, we proactively serve them uh, this information about that account. If they've scheduled an executive briefing in our EPC, we proactively in advance give them information about those accounts. So just those kinds of things. So it shows up at the moment that they need it, not just it's there and they have to remember to go get it.
0: Speaking of sales, let's get to our segment, the dust-up. Here comes trouble.
1: You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks.
0: So the up is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that is with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or, or really anyone else. Have you had a memorable up in your career, Mike?
1: You know, there certainly are times where I feel like people need to be educated. <laughs> I treat them as learning opportunities because I don't think if we're ever at odds at the ultimate objective, then we're actually doing something wrong. So if you scan back far enough, what sales is trying to do what marketing is trying to do, what the CEO and CFO care about, it's all the same thing, right? So you shouldn't have a dust up about those objectives. You may have either a disagreement or a lack of understanding about, oh, well, what is it that marketing is doing to help me if you're a sales leader, let's say. Um, And so, like I said, I always treat that as an opportunity to learn because a lot of times, no, You know, salesperson doesn't know what marketing does on a day-to-day basis. We may not know exactly what a sales how a salesperson spends their eight hours. So, being able to kind of walk them through, all right, these are the objectives. Okay, we agree on those. These are the things that we're doing. This is the marketing mix that we're doing to try to get those objectives. Here are the kind of marketing level metrics that we use to understand that we're actually contributing to those objectives or not. And this is how it benefits you as a salesperson. So, those are the biggest opportunities. Is just some education, and you know, if we can agree on outcomes, and we can show data that proves that we're, you know, meeting those outcomes, there shouldn't be any debate about, you know, how we're spending our time or what we're investing in.
0: Mike, you're a diplomat, and I appreciate it. Um, it's well said. Okay, let's get into our quick hits. These are quick questions, quick answers just like how quickly you could talk to someone on your website with qualified.com. Qualified.com is the presenting sponsor of this show. Check them out. We love them. Go to qualified.com to learn more. Your prospects are on your website. You can talk with them quickly. Quick questions. Mike, are you ready? I think so. (laughs) What hobby or habit have you picked up in shelter in place?
1: Um, well, I would say drinking wine, but I was doing that before, so that probably doesn't count. One of the silver linings of Shelter-in-Place was that my daughter, who graduated from college last year and had started work across the country, decided to come Shelter-in-Place for a couple months with us. So she was here, which was great. Uh, And then she and I kind of got back into cycling a little bit. So been doing some bike riding, which is good because it's hard to get out and do much. You can't go to the gym. So uh, being able to cycle is is nice.
0: What's your favorite animal? Elephant. I saw you were tweeting about llamas the other day and I was cracking up because uh, (laughs) uh, I'm a fan. I have
1: some llama socks. Uh, I thought you were going to go llamas, but also I love elephants. Oh, sorry. Sorry to disappoint you. Llamas are perfectly nice. I did get the rare treat to go to Machu Picchu a few years ago where there are like llamas roaming around, which is very
0: if you weren't a CMO or in tech at all, what do you think you'd be doing?
1: What would I be doing or what would I like to be doing? Yeah, either one. Is this like you wait, know, I'd like to be an astronaut kind of conversation? Sure. You can be an astronaut in this conversation. No, actually, I mean seriously, I never set out to be a CMO per se. I I did set out to make a, a material impact on the on the outcomes of a company. So even throughout my career, they haven't always had, haven't always been in a pure marketing role. So, you know, I think I probably have at least the versatility to do some of the other jobs helping to lead a company. But aside from that, I do have some passion around STEM education. And, you know, we've done some things with Juniper, our involvement, like with the World Robot Olympiad and Girls Who Code. But I also am involved in a, an organization here in the Bay Area called 10,000 Degrees, which seeks to get more disadvantaged communities not just through high school into college, but through college. And so I would probably, once retirement is there, you know, definitely do something to uh, focus on education because it's obviously hugely important, especially as the world is changing so quickly.
0: Yeah. So I was going to ask about some of the work that you've done with STEM, and this is a perfect time. Some really cool stuff that you've done at Juniper World Robot Olympiad. Can you just share a little bit more about those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, as a tech company, even in a pure self-interest way, it, it makes sense for us to invest in the next generation of innovators and engineers. But obviously, just as a corporate citizen and as a a human being myself, I think it's tremendously important. And so, um, yeah, we've been global sponsor of the World Robot Olympiad for the last, I think, three years now. You know, unfortunately, this year, they they aren't getting to do all of their in-person competitions, but it'll back up next year. They have have a particular focus, obviously, on STEM, but also in increasing diversity in STEM. There's 70 countries represented in this program around the world, many of whom actually don't have very strong STEM programs just through their public education system. So this is a, an important adjunct to what people may or may not get through school and keeping people interested in STEM so that they can hopefully some of them eventually pursue a career in STEM. And so that's one example I mentioned, Girls Who Code and a number of other organizations that we both contribute money and time to, uh, to help make sure that we're investing in that next generation.
0: For those CMOs out there that are taking on demand gen for the first time, any uh, any advice that you'd give? Yeah.
1: I mean, I would definitely say, you know, invest in... I'd invest in the data even before I invested in the in the MarTech stack. I mean, obviously you need a MarTech stack, but those exist. There are lots of solutions out there. They all have their pros and cons. So you have to have that. But but getting the data right, I mean, the, the company that owns the data, and I mean own and kind of owns the knowledge about the data and about the customer, is going to have a competitive advantage over, over others. So make sure you have visibility into as much data as possible about your customers, that it's in a, as centralized a place as you can, that you can tap into it, and you have people that can make sense of it uh, to help optimize your marketing and make it more effective. Mike, this has been great. Anything that we missed here so far? Not that I can think of. I mean, I guess the only other thing I'd say, because you asked about someone starting with demand gen, but more of a general comment is just that I found there are lots of things that marketing does in a B2B company. Some of those are more squishy, as I like to say, but demand gen is one that doesn't have to be and shouldn't be. And In fact, it's the, it can be the easiest conversation you can have with a sales leader, with a CFO, with a CEO about the contribution of marketing. You know, some of the things that we do are a little bit more nebulous and there's still value there, but it's harder to quantify or to put into business metrics. Um, but this is one that you ought to be able to say, this is how much, how many opportunities we're creating. Those opportunities are worth this amount of money and those opportunities ultimately turned into this amount of revenue. That's pretty unassailable. So I found that that's like the one thing to anchor on. So if you're just getting started, you know, invest in the data, invest in the tools, the carrot for you is... To be able to talk to your CFO and say marketing is delivering this value for the business.
0: Well, that's it. That's all we got for today. Thanks so much for for joining the show. We really appreciate it. It's so awesome to hear everything that you're working on and the demand gen engine that you've built at uh, Juniper Networks. Our listeners, you know, if you if you're talking to the CIO, check out Juniper Networks. Um, you know, pass some info along. Anything else, Mike?
1: Nope. It's been a pleasure, Ian. As always, uh, it, was, it was great to chat with you. Take care. All right, you too. ManGen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.